Today's Words and Nerds podcast is sponsored by The Accomplice by Steve Kavanagh. If you were married to a serial killer, would you know? Steve Kavanagh's follow-up to the best-selling 13, 50-50 and The Devil's Advocate is his twistiest yet. The Sandman serial killings have been solved. Daniel Miller murdered 14 people before he vanished. His wife Carrie now faces trial as his accomplice. The FBI, the district attorney, the media and everyone in America believe she knew and helped cover up her husband's crimes. The only thing between a life in jail or free Freedom is Eddie Flynn and his team. Steve Kavanagh is the master of the twist and The Accomplice will keep you guessing right to the last page. The Accomplice is released in Australia on the 26th of July. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm uh. feeling sick. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your guest host for this episode, Sandy Docker, and today I'm delighted to be chatting with Cassie Hamer, author of After the Party and the End of Cuthbert Close, and her fabulous new novel, which we are talking about today, The Truth About Faking It. Welcome, Cassie. Thank you so much, Sandy, my friend. Nice to be chatting. I know. It's been such a funny couple of years, hasn't it, with... um, author events being cancelled it's nice that we still have this medium that we can work through i only knew the word zoom as the ordinary dictionary definition up until a couple of years ago so to zoom (laughs) as like a verb to meet online is something i'm now very familiar with and don't we wish we had shares in zoom the company right now (laughs) so um Let's kick this off, Cassie, by giving our listeners the elevator pitch of your new book. Mm, Sure. So The Truth About Faking It is a family drama about three generations of women who already lead quite busy and chaotic lives, but their lives are thrown into further disarray by the mysterious death of the family's patriarch, David. So that's sort of the two-sentence summary of what the book is. But I would say it's a book about being true to yourself, uh, about Mm -hmm. speaking up. It's got quite a lot of humour, quite a lot of intrigue and a definite focus on women and women's relationships and particularly those between mothers and daughters because they're just such a rich source of tension and conflict and love and hate so I did have a lot of fun exploring those. That was actually one of the questions I was going to ask you Um, I'll skip down to that one now the fact that you have a daughter a mother and a granddaughter on the page you have to go into that dynamic of the mother-daughter relationship 
what is it about those relationships that just make such good fodder for storytelling? Yeah, they really are fantastic for storytellers. And I think because there is inherent tension in them. I, I don't know what your relationship is like with your mum, but mine is very loving. Um, but mm -hmm. she's my mum is also my best critic, um, but yeah. <laughs> she is also my best unabashed supporter. Um, and growing up, I was extremely close with my mum and we did have a very tight relationship. But yeah, she is not afraid to tell me what's what. I often think of my mum as being my conscience. She's the little voice mm -hmm. in my head that tells me when I've sort of stuffed up or when I'm not doing what I should be doing because she is a very good and decent person and she's actually nothing like the 69-year-old character in the book, Ellen, who's quite outrageous and and my mum was quite concerned that, um, you know, I'd written a character based on her and because Ellen does get up to some illegal activities and I had to assure my mum that, no, she was not Ellen. Um, but I think there's also a thing where, you know, I have three girls and I always wanted to have daughters. I do love the emotional life that women have. I love chatting with my girlfriends. I love that we can talk about everything from, you know, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard to the makeup of the latest cabinet to books mm -hmm. that we've read and love to movies, that sort of thing. So I do think there's just, I don't know, I'm a girl's girl. All those things I just find really fascinating and, um, you know, my eldest child is a teenager at the moment and that, you know, she likes to talk, which is great, but the talk is hard, like it's challenging. She, she says things to me that are challenging and that really force me to rise to the occasion. Now, I've not had boys and I don't want to get into ridiculous gender stereotyping, <laughs> but if my experience of my husband is anything to go by, Men just don't think about things in that way. They're just not em emotional in that way. They are emotional. And, and I do get into this in the book when I talk about how men behave at work. And, and you know, there's a few instances um, of scenes in the workplace where the men are quite angry. And, and that's my experience sometimes of some men in the workplace so let's not pretend that men aren't emotional they are emotional too but it is in a different way so look all of those things just make it um really fun for a fiction writer mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you mentioned at the beginning that the story is told through three generations of women and i'm going to get to each one of those individually in a moment but first, I wanted to ask you about the setting of the novel, in particular, the TV backdrop that it is set against. Natasha, our middle of the three generations, works for a, a current affairs style program and her daughter, Georgie, for a reality dating TV show. And I know that you come from a journalistic background. How much of your own experience is infused into the novel? A lot. Yes, I did work in journalism in my 20s and I loved it, but it was a bruising experience. 
TV is a highly, highly competitive industry. There are lots of young people, or there were lots of young people back when I was in my 20s trying to crack into it because it does have this veneer of glamour. It's actually not a very glamorous occupation at all. Um, it's a lot of hard work and, and a lot of really having to push yourself and meet deadlines and beat the competition. Uh, so it is a tough world. I was very young. I was 20 when I started working in TV journalism in the country. I was pretty naive. I had a pretty sheltered childhood. Um, and certainly I was out in the country having to cover issues and stories that I'd never encountered in my life. Uh, and the bosses, some of the bosses that I had were really tough on me. And I found it quite a boys club. There was a lot of subtle pressure for women to look a certain way that I didn't see that pressure being exerted on the men. The, the male mm -hmm. journalists could pretty much roll up in any old thing and wear no makeup and be bald as badges and that was all fine. But um, we, the female journalists, did have to look uh, a certain way and, you know, I had instances where um, – uh, the boss would send me off to the hair and makeup consultant because I looked a bit too severe on camera. And uh, so it was a very high pressured, blokey environment. And, and I did work my way up to eventually landing a job in the Sydney newsroom for Channel 7. And I'd started working there as a producer on the Sunrise show, you know, writing scripts for Mel and Koshy. And had sort of worked my way through the ranks to being an on-camera reporter for the 6pm news. And that was the dream. That was the dream job that I'd had since I was a teenager and I'd done work experience on the Today Show with Steve Liebman and fell in love with the industry because I was just a curious child, curious about mm. lots of different things and loved stories and storytelling. And so journalism seemed a very natural fit. So, you know, I was at the age of 28, really in the job that I loved. And then one day the boss called me in for a meeting to talk about my future. And he sat me down and said, look, I don't see you as being an on-camera reporter into the future. We want you to be behind the scenes um, because you don't have the X factor to be on TV. And I wow. was devastated. I was just devastated. Yeah. It was the crushing of a dream in a single sentence basically um yeah. uh so i decided to leave the industry because i didn't want to have my future um be decided on an x factor which i did not understand but seemed to be slightly gendered even though mm. i had no real evidence of that i just felt in my gut it was something well, it was obviously something to do with the way I appeared or came across on camera, but he couldn't really explain it. I couldn't mm. understand it. And uh, I just didn't want to be in an industry, yeah, where, where my future was sort of resting on one man's opinion of how I appeared on camera. So mm. I left the industry and, and I do have some regrets about that. I think it would have been a tough job to hold down with a family um, mm -hmm. because you are expected to put aside everything when a big story breaks and just be able to drop everything sure. and go, which is extremely hard if you're a parent. 
Um, but, you know, then again, if I hadn't stopped working in TV, I may not have come to writing fiction. And, and I did use all those experience I had and put them in this book because I did want to say something about sexism in the media. So much as I hate to admit it, maybe that bozo boss did me a favor, but I hate to put it in those words because it did not feel like a favor at the time. It just, yeah, it was, it was an awful experience. All right. Well, we'll, we'll let it, that sentence out so that he never hears. <laughs> I don't care. Quite frankly, I do not care. I'm, that's the beauty of getting old is you just yeah. give zero whatever's about mm -hmm. what other people think. And, um, and I think I've also channeled that into Natasha that mm. being middle-aged in TV can be a difficult experience because you are getting to that pointier end where there's not as many older women on TV as there are younger ones. It is improving, but even the women who are older still look gorgeous and glamorous and you wouldn't know that they're a day over 50. Mm. Um, so mm. it can be a tricky industry to be in for women women in their middle ages. Um, you know, life is difficult, I think, to navigate for women who are menopausal or postmenopausal. Um, but I think what Natasha learns is to speak up for herself and be true to herself, mm -hmm. I think. I'm going to come back to Natasha in a moment. But I think that we probably should talk about Ellen first. Ellen is um, Natasha's mother, the grandmother of the three women uh, and the matriarch of the family. She's uh, quite a feisty older woman in the story who gets up to all sorts of mischief and you touched on that uh, when we first started speaking. And, and I think she kind of encapsulates the modern catchphrase of living her best life. <laughs> I think that's, or at least on the surface, she is living her best yeah. life. Now, she is the source of an awful lot of the humour that comes through in this book. And I know that you've been asked a lot since The Truth About Faking It came out, whether she is based on your mum, and you've already answered that question for us today. But what I want to know, because I know you quite well, Cassie, and I know your sense of humour, how much of you is in <laughs> Ellen? Damn it, Sandy. <laughs> We're supposed to work that out. <laughs> She's basically me in 20 years, I think, minus a few no, no, little habits. <laughs> no, there, there actually is a lot of me in Ellen. There's a lot of my um, rather less kind thoughts about people in the mm -hmm. world channeled through Ellen, and she was a good vehicle for getting out, yes, some of my, um, I think we all have sides of ourselves that we're less proud of and less eager mm -hmm. to show. Um, but I think Ellen is less afraid than I am. And so she lets her inner sort of bad girl flag fly. Um, mm -hmm. And so she's sort of the woman I want to be in some ways because <laughs> she is quite unapologetic about who she is. So. Basically, her situation is that she's been one of those women who's um, taken time, well, basically ended her own career ambitions to raise her daughter um, while her husband, David, went off to work as a foreign correspondent. So she's done the right thing and she stayed home and 
looked after Natasha and done the best job that she could. So, you know, and then she's reached this older age and suddenly her husband has just decided he wants to use the superannuation and go off on this wonderful overseas sailing adventure with his brother and Ellen's not having it she's done like she was promised that they were going to have a great retirement together and and she's still stuck at home sort of looking after the family dramas so she's sort of rightly pissed off I think with Mm -hmm. her lot in life and I think this happens to a lot of women that um you know and and it is fact that women over 55 are the fastest growing group of homeless and it is because we don't accumulate the same amount of super annuation because we've taken that time out of the workforce to raise a family. Then you get to your late 50s or 60s, maybe your marriage breaks down, maybe someone is sick or um, you know um, loses their job and suddenly um, you, you, you have nothing you, you, or you have very little and that's the situation mm-hmm. Ellen has found herself in. So there's a fair bit of anger in Ellen, but she's also extremely resourceful and non self pitying. So she does what any cool, glamorous 69 year old would do, and she goes out and gets herself a rich boyfriend. <laughs> um, but, you know, she sort of knows deep down that perhaps um, her feelings aren't quite genuine for this, for this guy, but he does represent financial security so she has this dilemma of you know what what do I do do I do I you know buy myself a a future of comfort or do I remain true to myself and I think you handled that so well because we as the reader we know that she's not in love with the boyfriend we know exactly how she feels I mean she doesn't dislike him she thinks he's a nice guy but she is using him as Mm. such and you know if you had told me that about somebody you know my friend Jane is using Bob just for his money I would have been horrified and I would hate Jane automatically but we don't hate Ellen because we understand where she's coming from and Mm. the life that she has been forced to lead and, and where she finds herself so I think you handled that really beautifully that we we can have sympathy for Ellen in that situation you know that she isn't a gold digger as such she's just trying to survive yeah, and, and I think that was something that like her inner voice came very naturally to mm-hmm. me. And I think you you hit the nail on the head that, that if you can convey a character's motivations and their inner world to yeah. your reader, then they are prepared to forgive the flaws. I mean, flawed characters, all characters have to be flawed. Otherwise, they're hateable because they're perfect, you know, and they're just yeah. not interesting. <laughs> So I think the other thing about Ellen is that she's quite honest about her flaws too. She sort of knows that she's a bit of a selfish so-and-so and and Mm. she knows that that money is the imperative here. But, you know, she's in this situation not of her own making. The world has been quite unfair to her and she's she's fabulous. Like she doesn't deserve to be chewed up and spat up. Um, the way that she has been so yeah I do think I think in a way Ellen was a risk because no one likes a gold deer but Mm. like you say it's just all in the way that you frame it and give reader access to the inner workings of their mind yeah yeah no very well done on that like I wanted to hate her but I couldn't (laughs) (laughs) 
That's a relief. Yeah, she goes against everything I stand for and yet I still <laughs> fell in love with her. So. Oh, given that she's like me, that is a relief. <laughs> I mean, that bodes well for our friendship. That in 20 years' time, we will still be friends because you will be Ellen and I will still love yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. So. I'll be a gold-digging 69-year-old who loves Zumba and you'll still be my friend. <laughs> I will. I will. So let's move on to the second of our um, three protagonists, Natasha. She's Ellen's daughter, and she's quite a famous journalist in the world of the truth about faking it. And I kind of saw Natasha as the embodiment of the sandwich generation mm. in that she's still playing a role as mother to her daughter and trying to look after her mother, who is presenting some challenges for her at this stage in her life. But she's still in the midst of forging her own career and juggling those three things at the same time and I wanted to ask you Cassie do you think this is a modern problem or is it an old problem with just a catchy name now the sandwich generation ah oh, that is a good question I do think it's different now because women of Natasha's age are working and the expectation mm -hmm. is that if you're a, a woman uh you know between the ages of 20 and 60 let's say that you have a job uh, and that mm. you work and that is different to what we saw 50 years ago so 50 years ago someone like Natasha would have been at home tending to the family mm. and therefore um, I wouldn't like to say would have had more time to deal with older parents and younger children but her life would have been quite substantially different so yeah I do think um, obviously, the sandwich generation has existed to the extent where you've always had women in their 50s who had elderly parents and young children. But the difference is that women in their 50s also have a lot of other competing demands besides their family. And I think that it's that juggle of work and family that makes it much more difficult these days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And speaking of Natasha, I think she highlights beautifully the precarious nature of women in male-dominated industries, which the TV industry still is mm. these days. And you, you touched on this about women in the public eye having to be youthful and beautiful and perfect. And I wanted to ask you, you know, since your journalistic days to now and knowing that you've got three young daughters yourself how much do you think things have changed over the last say decade and how far do we still have to go things have definitely changed I there's no doubt about that we do see older women on our screen there are some women starting to make their way into senior management in these newsrooms but there is still such a long way to go and any gains that we've gotten are always in danger of being lost. You only mm -hmm. have to look at what's happened with Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, which I hate to reference this because everyone has and everyone has a hot take on it, but you only have to look at the treatment of Amber Heard to understand that the Me Too movement is precarious. Mm -hmm. uh, that there are people out there who are wanting to take women back to the dark ages where we didn't speak up about 
the appalling things that happened to us and we just accepted it. So, mm. uh, you know, I, I'm hopeful for my girls, but I think there's a battle that lies ahead. So the fact remains that still um, in all the national commercial TV newsrooms, it is men who are in charge. And so clearly there is scope for improvement in that regard and not just in relation to female representation either it's it's to do with um representation of diverse populations of ethnicity and sexuality and you know indigenous peoples like we just don't see enough different faces on commercial mm. television and seeing older women faces is just one of the ones that we need to see more of i suppose so um, yeah, I'll be encouraging my daughters to keep up the fight, fight the good fight, proudly proclaim themselves as feminists because it's just about achieving equality. And you look at the gender pay gap, um, mm. we don't have it. We, we just can't kid ourselves that the work is done. The work is not done. Uh, so, you know, I'll keep, I'll keep pushing these messages, I suspect, until my final breaths. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I think we all need to do that. I was reading an article about the new Top Gun movie uh, just the other day and uh, Kellen Gillis was asked why she wasn't part of it, why she didn't reprise her role. And her quick response to that was, I wasn't asked, I've aged naturally. And I went, whoa, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Really it's depressing it's depressing yeah. but um that is the fact we live in a youth and beauty obsessed culture um and where women aren't really supposed to age naturally i mean mm. like we are making little improvements bit by bit and there are some wonderful older female actresses you know helen mirren and judy dench who, who are yeah. great demonstrations in aging gracefully but there's not many of them you'd have to say i could probably name yeah. a lot more aging male actors than i can female ones and um i think it's just the expectation now that you have to mess with your face if you want to keep working mm. um so i think it's you know it's not just that all of this is exerted by men i think we as women also have to be supportive of each other in aging gracefully yeah. yeah or not I even agree. aging gracefully that's not even a really nice term just getting older no. like just yeah. like <laughs> you do you and uh, you know yeah. your wrinkles don't define you and they don't yeah. uh, they hair. don't put a value on you no no it's it's i'm always telling my kids it, it's about who you are on the inside well as adults we need to you know walk that talk basically mm. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, speaking of the youth, we'll move on now to the youngest of our protagonists, Georgie, and she is Natasha's daughter, Ellen's granddaughter. And Georgie's working on a reality dating show and the pressure cooker environment of that just leaps off the page. Like it was actually giving me anxiety a little bit, I have to say, <laughs> when I was reading those scenes with with her boss and, and everything that she had to go through. And, you know, because I was reacting to that so strongly, you know, I know that if that were me, I would have told my boss, 
well and truly where to go and I would have chucked that job in Mm. ages ago Mm. but Georgie seems to really love that environment Mm. are you the kind of person who thrives in pressure situations like Georgie oh gosh that's a good question um in some ways in some ways I do love a deadline because that was the way I worked when I was in journalism. So you get that story in by 6 p.m. or actually there's not even an option. There's no yeah. second option. <laughs> it's just you yeah. get that story in by 6 p.m. And mm-hmm. that could that did create moments of mad panic and running tapes from edit suites. This was back in the day of tapes. Running tapes from edit suites to the control room. Like it's actually quite addictive, the amount of adrenaline and excitement that you could experience. But, you know, a- adrenaline overdoses also leave you feeling slightly exhausted as well. Um, and to this day, I still have, you know how you have certain dreams that just happen again and again and again? Well, the one dream that I often have, one of them is sitting my year 12 exams again, but the other one is um, that I'm not going to get my story done on time. So, you know, I'm now 45 and I've worked in journalism more than, you know, well, nearly 20 years ago, but I still have that dream that I'm not going to get the story done in time. So Mm. I think I'm a bit like the duck paddling on the water like on the outside Mm -hmm. everything is sort of serene but I am paddling like hell underneath the surface (laughs) so I think in some ways um I I do relate a lot while I said that sort of Ellen could be me in 20 years when I just don't care what people think I think in all honesty I'm more at Natasha's controlled emotional state at the moment like I'm quite a controlled person emotionally and and sometimes Mm -hmm. it is quite hard for me to access my character's emotions because I'm not the most um, emotionally reflective um, person Uh, but for Georgie Georgie's just was she was just fun to write because she's 22 and Mm -hmm. there's such freedom in a way in being that age and and work is exciting and new and you're super ambitious and you really want to do well and she's such a cynic about love and that was just such a great counterpoint to her working on this show Mm. which is all about finding the happy ever after but in a way I feel like we've made our young people into cynics because we do dish up this stuff to them that we call reality but it's just puppet strings pulling material where you have people who are being directed in certain ways by producers behind the scene or they're doing what they refer to as frankenbiting, which is where they take one bit of one interview within a, with a contestant, stick it with another piece of an interview, and suddenly they're saying something that does not resemble at all what their actual words were. So there are some really interesting methods that reality TV show producers like Georgie use to get the most entertaining results for the screen and I did have some fun investigating and researching that because there's lots of material out there now from contestants who are speaking up about what goes Mm -hmm. on behind the scenes and some of the techniques and the treatment 
you know, it's actually hard to sometimes find humor in it because it can be quite soul destroying if you're that contestant who they decide to depict as the villain and you get the villain edit and suddenly everyone hates you. But I am really fascinated by that world and what it says about us as people and how it molds our expectations of life and relationships. And so Georgie was a good vehicle for looking at all of that. You mentioned that she's quite cynical about love. She says outright that she doesn't believe in true love. Do you? Oh, God, yeah. I'm a hopeless romantic. <laughs> it's awful. Oh, my Lord. Um, Yeah, I'm so lucky in the sense that I have an awesome husband and falling in love with him and finding him was the most defining experience of my life. Um, so yeah, I totally believe in true and everlasting love. I don't believe in love at first sight, um, okay. but I do, I do think, um, you know, that connection at first sight is definitely a mm -hmm. thing and chemistry at first sight for sure. Uh, but a true lasting relationship does take more than five minutes of first meeting, I think. So yeah, I totally, I, I love being married and I love long lasting relationships. And, and I, I think that's one reason I actually really enjoy young adult books and young adult mm -hmm. movies, because they're all about that moment of coming of age and finding love for the first time. And there's so much hope and optimism in those stories. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a sad sack, honestly, a total sucker <laughs> for all of that stuff. So sorry, it, Sandy. It's interesting to me then that you say that because Georgie is the antithesis of that. She is that age group, yet she is not a believer. And I find that so she's like the opposite of young Cassie. Well, she says she doesn't believe in true love and that's the key you know the mm -hmm. tagline of the book is um don't lie or lie to yourself or don't lie to yourself you know lie to your friends lie to your family just yeah. don't lie to yourself and i think ultimately that is what all three women have to learn is is what are their true feelings not just about those around them, but what are their true feelings about themselves? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we don't often come to terms with until much later in life. Mm. Uh, and I find that really interesting that, you know, we've got Ellen who is in her later stages of life who still mm. hasn't quite come to terms with it. Georgie, who's at the beginning of her life, trying to come to terms with it. So the juxtaposition of those three different characters all trying to get to that same point mm. it's really interesting mm. well look I, th I actually think um you know I said before that one of the reasons that I like young adult fiction and movies is because they're about coming of age but mm. what I really think appeals to me is that I always feel like I'm still coming of age I never feel yep. like me is an end point. It's going to sound really sappy, but 
everyone is a work in progress, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't sit back and think, wow, job done, Cassie. You're awesome. <laughs> no personal awesome. improvement required. I mean, there's there's always room for evolution and development and personal growth. So it, it's just that a lot of fiction seems to focus it on young people. But actually, I have to believe that older people are capable of change. I know that, you know, an awful saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Mm. Well, this old dog hopes that's not true because I do want to keep learning some new tricks into later life. I mean, yeah, I, I feel like you're, you're always learning and changing. So, um, so it's just as appropriate for a 69-year-old, the 69-year-old Ellen to learn something about herself, mm. I think, as it is for a 22-year-old to understand something about herself. Yeah, absolutely. With the three generations in The Truth About Faking It, you explore beautifully how each of those three generations approaches the different challenges in their life in their different ways, obviously because of the stage of life that they're in. They all approach their work differently, their relationships differently, what's important to them within those relationships. And towards the end, and don't worry, listeners, I won't give any spoilers here, Natasha has a decision to make regarding a particular work situation. And Ellen and Georgie give her quite different advice mm. on what she should do with it. Mm. Uh, Ellen says to stay quiet and think about her financial security and Georgie says speak up and fight for it and, you know, bugger the money. And, you know, they're exact opposite pieces mm. of advice for, for Natasha. And what I loved about that was how it showcased just how very differently we're raising our daughters mm. now mm. compared to, say, the way our mothers would have been mm. raised. Uh, and you've touched on that a little bit with your daughters, and I'm also raising a teenage daughter. I wanted to ask you, Cassie, what role do you think fiction plays in highlighting these shifts in the way that we deal with these societal issues and in what role it can play in advancing the thought processes around mm, these? Mm. So to me, reading is the ultimate act of empathy. The author is asking you to step into the shoes of someone who is maybe not your age, not at your stage, but to engage with them and understand them. So I think that, you know, that's, that is the beauty of fiction. It's, it's educational in an entertaining way. So you're learning about different perspectives and, and the one that you're, sort of referring to is very much around this, uh, the conversations that are being had about Me Too and the treatment of sexual abuse survivors and, and whether they should be, or, you know, whether it's advisable to be speaking up to, or to be remaining silent. And I do find that a lot of the conversations I have around this that the pitch and tone of the conversation depends a lot on what generation the other person is from so for instance my mother has quite different views compared to my views on these things and then obviously my daughter and her generation have quite different views again 
And I suppose what I would really love is for all of us to be able to step into each other's shoes and just to understand where each person is coming from. I think, I think that's the most in life with really difficult areas that you can hope for in terms of debate is just that everyone steps back and it just at least tries to understand where someone else is coming from. I think that happens mm -hmm. far too little. We're all so mm -hmm. busy shouting at each other and just, you know, even with the anti-vax debate, like, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm very pro-vaccination um, and there was just a lot of shouting about that mm -hmm. issue and part of me just wanted to try and understand the anti-vax approach just so that I wouldn't personally feel so angered or triggered by it. Um, it just made me so angry to think there were people out yeah. there who weren't going to be vaccinated. But then anger wasn't a useful emotion for any of us during that during this awful COVID time. So mm -hmm. the only alternative was to think, well, where, where are the anti-vaxxers coming from? Like what, yeah. what's the root cause of this? Is it genuine fear of the vaccination or is there just something else going on in these people's lives that make them fearful or anti this particular life-saving medicine? So, yeah, I just generally think empathy and understanding are underrated values in our society. Mm. And they have done scientific studies to show that the more widely a person reads fiction, the more empathetic they are mm. as a person, which I think mm. is just fabulous. Mm. And not surprising at all. Like, I mean, you see it all the time with the author community, just how it's a community of kindness and support mm. and I firmly that's believe that's because most authors are avid readers and their their minds are open to other ideas and other ways of being. Yeah, yeah. We can't talk about the truth about faking it without mentioning the humour that runs through the story, and we have touched on that a little bit today. It is chock-a-block full of humour and I messaged you when I first started reading it I was um, in hospital having some surgery and I was actually listening to the audiobook um, so it wasn't quite so obvious what I was doing and I was laughing out loud in the middle of the hospital and people were kind of giving me some funny looks on that. Um, are you conscious of how funny you are on the page and do you deliberately try to inject that humour or is it more of a it comes out how it comes out? I definitely tried in my early writing years to squash the humour because I felt oh. like I should be writing serious literary fiction and there wasn't really a place for humour in that. And that mm -hmm. was informed by doing a Masters in Creative Writing at university. And university creative writing studies just have a very particular yes. focus on literary fiction, yeah. which is wonderful if that's where your natural voice lies. But I think I was a, you know, square peg trying to fit myself into a round hole. And it took me several years and reading Leanne Moriarty, I must say, to understand that there is a place for humour in fiction. And 
there's also a place for darker themes to work alongside of that. Mm. And so that's why reading Leon Moriarty was so eye-opening because suddenly here was this Australian author reflecting back domestic Australian experiences and doing it with loads of wit and humour, but also tackling some really dark themes. I think The mm. Husband's Secret was the first book I read of hers and then obviously Big Little Lies and that that has a lot to say about domestic mm. violence, but is also very funny. You know, I sometimes yep. think that's not talked about enough, just how witty and snarky and, and funny she is. But that really was a light bulb experience for me. And humour is something that's as important to me as food or exercise in terms of daily mm. life. I, I married a guy who's very funny. Well, he, he's funny to me. Um, <laughs> and, and I like to laugh. I like to smile. I like to see the absurd in life because so much of it is just so absurd um especially parenting you find yourself just doing ridiculous things with poo and wee and it just feels really debasing but it's also very funny um and if you don't laugh you'll cry i suppose yep. and i'd prefer to laugh than cry about it so do i know that i'm funny when i'm writing I know what appeals to me and what tickles mm. my funny bone. And I can only hope that if I find it funny that someone else will too. And look, they don't always, you know, I think some people read my books and humor is subjective and yeah. some people don't find it funny and that's fine because I know that, yeah, I, I don't find the same things funny that some other like slapstick humor don't find it mm. funny. Some people mm -hmm. think it's absolutely hilarious. So um, there are different views on what makes comedy and I'm fully aware of that. But um, so it is a bit of a double-edged sword. If you, don't, if you don't hit someone else's funny bone, they're just going to hate the book. So yeah. um, it is a bit of a risk, I find. But then again, it's like my theory on humanity. Like 95% of people are awesome and 5% are dickheads and like it's the same with humor i think there's a certain humor that's going to appeal to 95 percent of people and then the other five percent well i can't help them that's yeah. that's their lot i suppose <laughs> oh dear that's true and and the thing that i love about it particularly books like yours where there is such a, a strong sense of humor through it while dealing with some very deep issues is that it makes it accessible mm to many more people. It's the thing that I love about commercial fiction yeah. rather than, than literary because, you know, not everyone's going to read a deep, dark, hard-hitting memoir on mm. a survivor of domestic violence's experience. Mm. Mm. But imagine the number of book clubs that are reading, you know, The Truth About Faking It now mm. and can mm. get into that discussion and it, it opens up those channels for discussion in a really safe way I think mm. when it's dealt with like this so yeah I'm all I'm all here for that yeah I agree I think humor and fiction are the sneaky little Trojan horses that trundle in and then suddenly disgorge all this amazing content that gives you food for thought so I think I mean my mm. primary objective is definitely to entertain and tell a good Absolutely. story 
But at the end of the day, your work has to be about something. Otherwise, it's just like eating fairy floss. There has to be some underlying, not message, because I don't think good fiction preaches, but there has to be Mm -hmm. meaning. You have to feel like you've, I don't know, had an experience of some kind, I think. Um, So I hope that that's what readers take away from the book. Yeah. Well, I personally think you have definitely achieved that with The Truth About Faking It, Cassie. Congratulations on a fabulous, fabulous read. And I hope that everyone listening today, if you haven't got it already, that you rush out to the shops and get it now. You won't be disappointed. But before I let you go, Cassie, I need to ask you, what is next for you? Oh, next is another book. And Uh, I'm not quite sure when it will be published, but hopefully next year sometime. And uh, it's a little bit hard to talk about because I am sort of working on two things at once and I'm not quite Mm -hmm. sure which one will be published. But um, one I have written, I'll give you the working titles of each one. One is called Weekend at Bear Park. And it's about a mother's group who goes on a clothes optional weekend away. And one of them. I won't be joining you on that one. (laughs) The the research has been very challenging, let me say that. (laughs) Uh, And the other book I'm working on at the moment is called uh, Life and Death in the Dog Park. And and, uh, I have a little dog. I got a dog three, four years ago, just before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, the dog park was basically our only form of socialization. And I've mm-hmm. learned so many interesting things and met so many interesting people through the dog um, that I just decided it would be a fun setting for a book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, they both sound fabulous. So I might let you go so you can finish writing both <laughs> yeah. of those, Cassie, so that we can enjoy them uh, next year and end of the year after. Thank you so much for joining us today, Cassie, on the Words and Nerds podcast. And I'd like to send a thank you to Danny V, the usual host of this podcast, for allowing me to take over in this instance. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you, Cassie. And again, everybody, out you go right now to the shops and by Cassie Hamer's The Truth About Faking It. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sandy. And yes, thank you, Danny. I hope we haven't broken your podcast. (laughs) See you soon. (laughs) 